Welcome to Checking In, a weekly podcast from Hotel Owner, the UK's trusted source of hotel industry news and analysis. Each week we meet a new guest and learn their story, all the highs and lows, triumphs and disasters they've faced and how they got through to the other side. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you listen to. To get more industry insight, head to hotelowner.co.uk and subscribe for unlimited access. If you're interested in sponsoring episodes of the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at hotelowner.co.uk. Hello, welcome to this episode of Checking In. My name is Lewis Catchpole, and today I'll be joined by Jim Cockle, the owner of the boutique hotel, The Old Stocks Inn. We discussed Jim's decision to acquire the hotel back in 2014 and what he learned during the significant renovation project that followed, what skills he thinks are needed to create a successful revenue management strategy, and why hoteliers should always look out for their opportunities to diversify their revenue streams. Jim, thank you much for joining us today on Checking In. Um, I was wondering if we could start by uh, asking you just to run through kind of your career up to the old stocks and uh, maybe some highlights and kind of what drew you to the industry. Okay. Uh, well, pleasure to be here. Um, what drew me to the industry? Well, that's, uh, I kind of fell into the industry. I It all started, I was about 17. I was at A-levels, didn't really like school, did one of those tests and uh, you answer 80 questions. And at the end of it, it gave me three options. I can't remember what the third option was, but I distinctly remember the second option was hotel manager. And the first option was the bats inspector. And I didn't really want to be a bats inspector. So I opted to go for the the hotel kind of route. And, and, and kind of from that, I... The family had always been in hotels. I hadn't kind of put the two together, really. I would say so. I um, we'd kind of grown up going to visit hotels. My 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 dad's business was in the kind of hotel booking agency market, and uh, and and that kind of just suddenly went a light bulb came on. And I thought actually that's a career I can see myself going into. So I um, took a gap year went into the industry, did all the stupid stuff that you do on a gap year, tried every department and realized, actually, I do still love it. Um, but what I did realize then is, you know, that I needed a degree when I did my degree at, uh, at university. Had, had the luxury of doing another gap year, which I did in, in Dublin, and was mentored by a revenue manager who kind of really opened my eyes to that side of it. And so it came to the end of my degree, had decided F&B was just not my cup of tea particularly. Um, and I wanted the more commercial kind of finance revenue side of it. Um, and that put me straight into uh, kind of my first job, which was with uh, IHG as a, as a single unit res, uh, reservation manager. And I then moved from that up to various roles within them to uh, kind of area revenue manager for the for the north of England, which was about 35 hotels. Um, and then kind of stepped out of that, moved into more of the kind of Devere Village and Principal Haley brand. So really got a, uh, a good understanding of kind of conference and bankruptcy revenue management, pricing, sales, that side of it. Um, then did something very different, went, wanted a bit of a change, Tension Express and uh, ran coaches for, for a couple of years, which was uh, very interesting. Uh, commercially, very you know similar practices in revenue management, but gave me a different perspective outside of hotels. Um, uh, and just, yeah, just added to uh, kind of a knowledge and skill set to some extent. Um, 
but hotels was always there and in the background as as a family we'd always kind of had this belief or this dream to own a little hotel and uh it, it kind of became a reality in 2014 end of 2013 with the old stocks uh, and that's where i've kind of been ever since for the last 10 years doing uh doing the hotel side of it and uh consulting in the hospitality space with other people helping them kind of either improve the business or change direction so um somewhat true to my roots but just kind of diversified a little bit in the, in the latter years into, into more of an operator so we'll touch on the old stocks and, and maybe some more of uh the revenue management bit in a sec as well but i just wanted to ask what was it that initially kind of attracted you to the re- revenue management side of it was it just does it speak to your personality was it maybe a certain experience you had when you were like starting out what was it kind of that drew you to that um i think it was twofold so i had a as a, as i mentioned i did a gap year um in before university where i did a lot of f and and i did a little bit of reception and i was very very lucky i did a reception got about eight weeks on the front desk of a big hotel in, in ireland which um which was you know full of celebrities and it was a great experience and it really kind of made me go front of house is is where i wanted to be and then I did another 15 months in Dublin with a with a revenue manager as a mentor and she just exposed me to a side that actually at university would not be taught an awful lot about and it was just an area of the course that didn't have a lot of exposure so we did a lot of cooking food and beverage as I call it housekeeping that you know the kind of operational stuff but revenue management was still a little bit of a dark art and I really liked it and it kind of sat with my brain as to how it worked mathematically um so i did i really focused on that and i could see that that would potentially be a career that would uh, you know that role would become much more instrumental in hotels in years to come and you know that i think that's proven to be the case it's, it's become a real cornerstone of of most big hotels and chains now that have that discipline at the table in a in a, in a boardroom um because it can be so impactful to your to your kind of bottom line Moving on to the old stocks then, uh, if you can maybe just explain kind of how you came to the opportunity to acquire it and um, kind of what attracted you to it and the area, basically. So I had, um, during my university sessions, at, uh, I was in Cheltenham, uh, Gloucester, whatever it was called, University of Gloucestershire back then, but um, uh, I was based in Cheltenham and I used to work throughout my uh, university for um, hotels just to keep uh, a bit of income. And I ended up working for a small uh, owner operator in the, in the middle of Chipping Candle, which is in the middle of the Cotswolds, the small hotel. And I spent nearly a year and a half working with him. And he had kind of lived the dream I had in the back of my head. He'd bought a, come out of corporate world, bought a, a little hotel, had refurbished it, renovated it, and set it on a trajectory. Mm. And, and so that had kind of laid the foundations and just as with a lot of these things, timing just worked out. I come to a natural close within my corporate life, and I think I wanted to, you know, a bit more flexibility. Um, family had started, and uh, you know, we looked at a lot of hotels and the old stocks. Just I, the minute I walked in, it was uh, an underachieving, very um, kind of. Uh, distressed 
bit of property. It sat in a great location. It had a really good footfall. Uh, it had frontage. It had style. It had an opportunity. And I think I can just remember walking around it and every room I went into, I could see the opportunity to where to knock a wall down, where to put a bathroom, where to do something. And you don't necessarily find that with, with properties. When you're looking at it, you can kind of be, you can have character in certain bits and then just no character. This hotel just had bad character and it just needed to be polished and un, uh, kind of unleashed a bit. And so it, it was just a really great property to be able to to to, to acquire and do something with, and um, yeah, and that that kind of led to running it for a you know for nearly nine months as it was, and kind of learning all the bits that had been overlooked or not done, um, and it gave us the opportunity to really shape a business plan, put put together a, a kind of a strategy, a repositioning, uh, and go from there to to kind of into refurbishment and and into the state that it's in today. Mm. Um, it kind of sounds like a bit like every hotelier's dream kind of have this like <laughs> opportunity to kind of create it in their own vision. Um, what you said there, I think is really interesting is that you operated it kind of as it was for the first nine months. How valuable do you think that was that time for like, as you said, like learning, discovering kind of maybe its faults, its strengths and stuff like that? Yeah, I think, I think it's, um, I, I would say it was invaluable to some extent. I mean, I, I had an idea. We had a vision in, in when we purchased it. Uh, and and the family were quite all aligned on you know this is where it would go. What the nine months gave us is is almost to stress test some of those ideas. And there were definitely things that we went back to and went actually, you know, a good example of of a really basic one is it has it now has sixteen rooms. It had seventeen rooms when we bought it. One of the rooms was downstairs. It was tucked at the back of the property. It looked out into a wall. It was a pretty uninspiring room. And, you know, we took the decision after running it for nine months that actually that would be much better placed as a private dining room and a conference space. So we lost a bedroom, we gained a private dining room in the refurb. And, you know, that has driven a lot more F&B business for us than, than, you know, it would have as a bedroom. So it worked that much better. It gave us a, uh, a much better understanding of the staff. It you know, gave us who was good, who who perhaps was not right for the future, who was willing to change, who wasn't. And it just uh, gave us the opportunity to, to to see the kind of customers that were coming in um, and to make sure that, you know, if we were going to keep any of them, we were keeping the profitable ones and the ones that would sit in the, in the future world uh, as opposed to kind of holding on to lots of legacy uh, guests and, and, and contracts and agreements that perhaps were in place before that might not work in the future. Mm. And you said, like, you know, after that, you, you made some big changes. Can you talk us through the refurbishment process, um, how you found it, kind of what were the challenges, um, maybe some lessons learned? Obviously, it's a pretty big undertaking for, for anyone uh, kind of going through it. Can you just, yeah, give us your give us your wisdom after going through it? Um, don't do it. <laughs> um, no, no, seriously, uh, do, do it. I mean, our, our biggest, um, so the biggest challenge was the time frame we were doing it in. I was I was adamant that we would be back open within effectively four and a half to five months from when we closed at the tail end of October to we had a deadline of the end of February um, and race week, which was uh, you know our kind of guiding light. So we were doing an awful lot of work in a very short space of time, and we were doing it at the worst time of year because uh, you know the, it was the, the weather was was not on our side at all. 
Um, but the, the the hotel, the building needed a lot of attention, needed a lot of love. There were some horrendous, you know, issues with it. We, um, the kind of electrics, the plumbing, everything was just well past its date and had to be replaced. So it was kind of a root, a bottom up approach. We we did an awful lot of refurbishment on the mechanical and engineering side of it. Um, the floors weren't attached properly, you know, everything. And, and it's a great two-listed building, so there was a lot of, you lift up this floorboard and it opens up this problem, or you, 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 know, you find something that has to be kind of fixed as opposed to just what you thought was going to happen, which was just refurbishment of a room. Suddenly you're having to replace a floor, replace ceiling joists, put in steels to protect things. Um, so it was a big undertaking. We had a, a really good company that we worked with. So we kind of took the approach of find one vendor or one, uh, one, one company you could do the lion's share of what we needed from either subcontracting, the kind of technical stuff, plumbing, engineering, electrics, up to what was, uh, what was really good with the company we went with, which is a company called Techni, was they did a lot of craftsmanship. So they did a lot of woodwork so they could build pretty much anything we wanted bespokely and have it delivered to site, which, um, you know, from a furniture perspective, cost a bit more, but the longevity of that furniture has been tremendous. It's, it's you know, still very, very much in the same state it was when we first put it in there. Um, but it was, a, it was a, uh, you know, a difficult, challenging process, lots of curveballs, lots of things that we had to variation on. Um, you know, working with a, a listed building in the Cotswolds, you have the uh, delights of planning and their conservation and, and uh, you know, all the things that they throw at you. And, you know, naturally, in the Cotswolds, you might perhaps have a couple of uh, residents that don't have anything else better to do than to cause problems uh, and questions. And so it was, a, it was kind of like a, uh, I felt like I was uh, triaging lots of challenges and uh, kind of mediating lots of, uh, nonsense uh, problems that weren't really problems, but you know we we went through it. It was we had a great project team that worked on it, um, and we had some really good suppliers and a, and a fantastic designer who put a lot of effort into getting the right stuff there for the first first day. And it and thankfully we delivered and <laughs> opened as planned on the seventh of March. Mm. If if you were to you know speak directly to to our listeners, what was something that you think maybe people commonly overlook when undergoing a, a refurb that once you've kind of experienced yourself, you'd maybe give people a heads up and some advice on? So I mean, there's there's a, there's a couple of things probably um, you know set realistic timeframes because and have some have some contingency in there. Um, that was probably whilst we we got the building done in the time. Towards the end, there were lots of decisions we had to take that weren't perhaps what we would have planned for because we were on a on a tighter deadline. Um, you know, listed buildings are always much more challenging than they first appear. No one can really tell you, no matter how deeply they look under the covers and under the bonnet of the building, how much of a problem you might find in certain areas. So going in with your eyes wide open, knowing you've got enough of a pot of contingency to deal with those issues, and also just not being um, surprised when things come out of the woodwork is, is definitely what I would say. Um, and I guess the other thing is, you know, one of the the challenges with the building that we had was that it was you know effectively landlocked so it was a plot that couldn't really grow in terms of size um 
And I think, you know, one of the learnings we I would have is that when buying another property or buying a, a future property, it would be that you've got the opportunity to use more space that hasn't perhaps been capitalized on yet. Uh, we were very much using the existing space and, and repurposing it. And, and I think, you know, having more scope in the grounds or in the surrounding areas to build something else or to increase or to change the way that you do things uh, would have been a would have been quite useful over the last couple of years certainly after covid so after going through all that how is the how has the final result been um how how has kind of trade been since since the makeover i mean we've done um the hotel has performed extremely well we've had a difficult couple of years in the last couple of years mm. but you know we up, up until COVID, the hotel was growing nicely year on year. Um, last year, we had a, a record income uh, year, the highest we've ever had. And, um, you know, it was almost two and a half times as much income as we were taking in the first year that we took. So, um, you know, the, the hotel was formed. COVID, we were, you know, we were very lucky. There were a lot of businesses during COVID that were not in the location that we were. Uh, and had we been a remote hotel in the middle of uh, mid Wales, it would have been a much harder uh, situation for us to find ourselves yeah. in. But we were very lucky. We were in the middle of the Cotswolds. Everyone wanted to come to the Cotswolds, irrespective of whether it was COVID or not. Um, so we've had a, you know, we've had a very, we bounced back very quickly. And the team have been, you know, we've had, we've got a fantastic team at the hotel. Some of them have been with us for 10 years. Most of them have been with us over five years. Uh, we've got some real long service. We've got a very good retention in the in the core team. And and, and that, again, has just helped us to, to deliver over the last couple of years. Um, and, yeah, um, we've, we, we've navigated, I think, our hardest year last year in terms of cost increases, inflation, energy costs, all of that piece. We've got through it. Haven't had the best financial performance, but, but I think we we've, we've got a financial performance which is we're still there. <laughs> and there are a lot of unfortunately a lot of hospitality business that aren't in that situation. Um, you know that's that's a, a credit to to the team and just to the resilience of the business and to our customers who come back year after year and bring you know their friends, their family, their generations with them and continue to book us. So uh, yeah, it's been a, a great journey actually for Jeff. Just to touch on. What you just mentioned there, but in the past year, how did you go about navigating kind of those challenges? I know a lot of hospitality businesses were kind of um, maybe in two minds of of trying to reduce costs, but without you know necessarily impacting the quality of their offering. How did you kind of find it? I don't know if we got it right. Well, I, I say I don't know if we got it right. We're here and we're we're uh, solvent and we're paying people and we're we're we we navigate it. I mean we. We were unfortunate. We had, um, we came off a three-year energy deal at January 2023, and our energy costs went from circa forty thousand pound a year to just shy of one hundred and forty thousand a year. So immediately, a hundred thousand pounds worth of profit just just disappeared out of our control, um, and there was not a lot we could do with that. Um, mm. So we we kind of had a couple of strategies in the early days and the first in the quieter months I would say the Cotswolds is, is not a is a twelve month a year business but the, the reality is for seven or eight months of that it's busy and then you have the kind of traditional January February November early October bit that's just a bit quieter we 
for the for the first part of the year, we shut the hotel for two days a week to try and reduce energy costs in the January, February, March periods. Um, and then obviously we reduced staff costs as a result because we were operating five day weeks so we could rotate more efficiently. And then when we came into the summer, we went back into full seven days a week. And unfortunately we had to pass some of that cost on to the customers um, in terms of price increases. And, and that was a hard decision to take and quite an emotive one for me because I've always, when it's your business, even though my background is pricing, even though I've learned all of the kind of please detach your emotion away from when you're pricing something, there was a part of me that was going, I'm charging more for the same product than I've ever charged before. But as a team, we decided that we could we could sustain that if we deliver great service. And so our whole focus of last year was no matter what, do the right thing, serve the customer in the way that we do and make sure the service is the thing that they remember and they will then hopefully as customers accept a, a price increase if the delivery of that service is there i think businesses often put prices up and then fail on the service side or strip back things that mean that the value proposition is not as good as it was or protect or potentially start to question whether the value position is, is, is worth it. And I think for hospitality, that often gets hotels and, and, and venues into a bit of a, a sticky situation. Um, so, yeah, it was a combination of, you know, as soon as we can manage cost base down and get out of these contracts or change our contracts we have, um, took a very close eye on, on cost control where we could put the prices up and maintain and deliver exceptional service. And, and hopefully that kind of recipe pot has worked for us and has, has kind of took us through to, to where we are today. Well, I think you, you kind of said at the beginning of, of that answer, you know, the fact that your solvent's still operating, I think that is a, kind of a good sign. <laughs> you know, it, it was it was a good result. Um, so, yeah, touching on, again, what you kind of just mentioned there about uh, taking those decisions, managing revenues, this is something that, you know, you have good experience in what would you say are kind of the key skills um to to do that effectively uh, and kind of know you're kind of pushing in the right direction and making the right choices i think um so i'm very lucky i've had a management couple in the hotel since pretty much day one and they 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 have run it and they know it so i've got a good sounding board in them when we make difficult decisions they we all come at it at a slightly different approach um and that's quite a nice luxury for me to have to have you know a couple that that fundamentally will question me and ask me the right questions but also give a different perspective to things um i think in terms of kind of revenue management tough decisions there are there are a couple of, of kind of core skills and qualities that you you tend to find. Um, you know, good good strong revenue managers present features like you know their their ability to make decisions. They're naturally comfortable, as I am, naturally comfortable in the numbers. I try and make decisions based on data where possible, and then overlay that with a with a kind of emotive. Um, operational head as well, which is is always good, but data driven isn't are, are are often the key to making the right ones, and um, rather than what you think is the right one, I think you you have to have an element of risk, uh, and you're comfortable with the risk, 
Um, I've met revenue managers who are so risk averse in my years that they never make a decision um, because they're so worried about the impact. And and you have to be able to kind of reach a point where you haven't got 100% of the data, but you can make an informed decision. And whether you have 60 or 70% of that data, you're still going to make the same decision because you're willing to balance that risk versus the reward. And I think that that is also a um, you know, a skill that possess that revenue managers generally need to be able to possess. Um, and I think the other thing is, you know, being able to sit in the customer's shoes, whether that be, you know, when we make decisions about the hotel, whether we put the price up, can I sit in the customer's shoes and say, I'm comfortable with what we're offering them, even though the price has gone up, I'm comfortable with, with what they're getting. Um, and, and as a revenue manager, often, historically, years gone by, you would find revenue managers never left the office. They would sit behind computers. They would be a bit like the accelerator in the brake. You know, the sales team would come in and they'd say, can we do this? And the brake would go, no, you can't. <laughs> and I very much encourage any any revenue managers that I mentor or I, I get involved with with businesses that actually they need to be able to sit in front of that customer. They need to be able to shape shift out of analytical data and be able to sit in front of the customer and explain why the price is that and why we can't take that one piece of business that blocks us out for three days. And being able to do that just brings the skill set and an influencing set uh, skill to those revenue managers that means that they are not just uh, data analysis crunches. They're able to impact and influence decisions with the customer, within the team, within their peer group. Uh, and those types of skills are really, really important, I think. And obviously, we're kind of most positions, it seems like it's something that maybe gets a little bit easier with experience and kind of going through those situations. So I guess maybe the, the kind of important thing for maybe listeners who are kind of starting out on that journey is to maybe surround yourself with kind of much experience and advice as you can, maybe from others and, and learn. Absolutely. I mean, there's a plethora of self-help books that everybody wants to learn. And, and some of them, are, you know, you can learn a lot from those, but there is nothing better than, you know, putting yourself into situations that you know inherently you're going to be uncomfortable in uh, in your early part of your career because then you will suddenly become comfortable in those situations. And more importantly, you'll learn how to become comfortable in future situations as a result of that. Uh, and if you're you know, dead set on being a revenue manager and it's a great area of hotels, you know, slightly biased, great area of hotels to be in, um, but it's that ability to, to be comfortable with sitting with a sales team being being at one with the sales director being able to talk about what you know what makes a great piece of business and being able to educate the wider teams about why you make decisions that you might take i think is just definitely definitely the way that you can improve in the early stages and i know another thing that you're quite keen and passionate on kind of um undertaking and kind of uh, explain to other hoteliers is, is the importance of kind of diversifying their revenue streams. Um, I know you've kind of done that yourself with at the old stocks. Um, can you kind of just explain maybe what you've done and kind of the reasoning and, and, and why obviously hoteliers should be paying as much attention to it as they can? I think, um, I mean, we've, we've done it in, in various levels over the, the last five or six years. Um, and it's something that I think I encourage anyone I work with as a, as, as a kind of guidance or a consultant now. Um, having all your eggs in one pot is never a healthy situation. Um, and 
And so for us, you know, as a hotel, um, you know, our, our bread and butter is food and beverage and, and, and bedroom sales. But actually, you can you can open up avenues of, of, of revenue in, in lots of different ways. And often the best ideas don't come from within our industry. They come from outside and they're, a, they're an ability for you to identify something that you see at a supermarket that you don't really realize is why you're doing it. And the, the most simple example of that is kind of point of sale and how clever supermarkets are at point of sale. Now, hoteliers historically might have had big reception desks where you check in, check out, uh, and you've started to see the ability for them to get point of sale into those areas and be able to, you know, uh, to sell products as customers are leaving or as customers are arriving. So, you know, we've diversified into lots of strange little bolt-ons that customers can add to their stay from you know, uh, bespoke gins to cocktail books that we've written, um, to kind of toiletries, um, to bespoke candles, to scents, all these other things that we've actually had in the hotel, but we've decided that customers like them so much, they're willing to, to buy them and take them home with us. Doesn't make us huge amounts of money, um, but it's nice little add-ons. And actually one of the most important things is when you try and diversify into different revenue streams that that it that it sits well with your brand that you're not diversifying in something that has you know there is no point in putting a go ape uh tree top adventure in my in my garden because none of my customer base would ever use it and it doesn't align with my brand but for example in 2017 we we decided that what we needed to do was to diversify into kind of uh cottages uh, holiday lets because we could see that our customer base was uh, we have a we have a very interesting kind of life cycle in our customers a lot of our regular customers started dating and came to the hotel then they came back and got engaged and then they came back and did the kind of uh, mini moon type thing so we've kind of seen them two or three years in a row and then they have the first child and they come back and they do the first escape with the child, with the with the baby, and then they start to outgrow the hotel. And we could see this happening. So in 2017, we bought our first cottage in Stowe, and it was a three-bedroom cottage. Um, and it starts to diversify some of our customers who had outgrown the hotel but wanted to come and have a, a, a hotel experience, being a, a cottage around the corner. Um, and then what happened is those customers started to bring their families together at the hotel. So they'd take the cottage, they'd use the hotel for eating and drinking, but they'd, they'd stay in the cottage and it would be like a hotel experience. And that has been a really interesting diversification. We now have uh, we now have three holiday lets, all different kind of customer base. But again, we get lots of traction between hotel guests moving into that. Um, and it just means that when the hotel might be busy, the cottages uh, are not as busy. We've got another option. Or conversely, we've just got length of stay. It just helps us kind of diversify that revenue line so that we're not all completely reliant on on the hotel side of it. That's perfect. I think it's really interesting as well that uh, you say you kind of saw it through the kind of the journey of your customers as, as they kind of grow up, which I guess is, is lovely to see as well from a personal point of view, but also, yeah, that insight of, oh, this is why they may be not kind of coming back or, or following on so yeah that's that's really interesting it's really nice so we've got we've got some great customers but we've got customers that 
that come two or three times a year and we've watched the children grow uh, and it's lovely because you kind of you remember when they were a baby and now they're you know seven or eight and uh, it's just a really nice way to keep loyalty in your customers um, uh, and kind of keep up that story mm, I guess as well as that that's also that the familiarity of them coming back is also kind of what helps again build that kind of connection with with customers and also kind of again great marketing spreading word of mouth if they you know have that connection with your hotel it's kind of the best kind of free pr that you can have basically um great um so yeah i just wanted to kind of get your opinions now on how you see kind of the the hotel market as we're coming into kind of the the almost the end of the first quarter of, of 24 and what you're maybe looking out for so um i mean this 2024 for us is is just uh kind of a what i would say is a rebalancing year i think we've dealt with as much of the the, the cost challenges we had last year um and we've we're in a position where we've we've uh, as much control as we can have we, we've got them back under control um the year has, has started as predicted. I think you know, signed the signed the good. Um, I don't, you know, as I said, I uh, we're in a very lucky position. You know, I, I I'm acutely aware that in the middle of the Cotswolds, we don't feel the the pressure of you know the cost of living crisis in the same way as a hospitality venue in a city centre in a in a B town or a C town. I mean, that is just a much harder proposition. To, to trade in and um, what I would what I observe and I, I continue to observe is that customers return they want to spend their money they might not want to spend their money as many times a year as they have in in two or three years ago but when they do come they spend well but for that spend they expect exceptional service and they expect the delivery of what you're giving them to be as good as it could ever be. And I think hotels, um, the risk for hotels is that they they strip back that product in such a way and they charge more for it. The, the, the value proposition, as I mentioned earlier, starts to be eroded and that's when customers become disloyal. And they, uh, I think COVID has done lots of things, but it has also created a culture of when things aren't good enough, you get told much more than you ever did before uh, and that's great if you're happy with that but it can be very difficult if you're a struggling venue and you're constantly being told this isn't good enough this isn't but and 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 so i think you know that trend continues to 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 play out in hospitality industry across the country um travel seems to be returning in all, all locations uh, certainly for the Cotswolds, uh, we see a, a good steady stream of uh, tourists joining from the US again. Still not quite there from the, uh, from the Far East in, in, in terms of China um, and, and that kind of what we'd seen before COVID. But it's beginning to come back and that strength of pipeline is there. Just generally weddings, um, you know, the, we don't do many, we don't do any weddings, but we do, we're aware of lots of wedding businesses. And that market is is slowing down after what would have been a quite a big boom after COVID. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a, the industry in itself, I think, is in a bit of a, a, bit of a knife edge. It's, it's one of those that um, 
there are there are lots of pressures going on for the, for different hotels and different locations, um, and it and it is just a, a challenging year, I think, in general uh, for hospitality. We we still have a I, I still think that we're not seen as an industry anymore, uh, which is a real difficulty for us. Um, so people aren't aren't going into being chefs, and they're not going into being waiters as an industry. They fall into it. And then they quickly fall out of it and go and do something else. And I think that's that is our, you know, getting back to those grassroots. How do you get people into the industry? How do you make it seen as a career in the way that it is when you go into the continent and you see in, you know, France, in Greece, in, in Spain, it's a it's a career for people, not just something you do whilst you're doing something else. Um uh, and I think yeah, those those kind of pressures will continue in the in the staffing area for, for a few more years to come. Unfortunately, mm, yeah, that's it's uh, kind of a common theme that we've been hearing um, from other guests as well. So, you know, hopefully that there are solutions being kind of um, come through that. And you know, you always see the work of like UK hospitality and stuff like you know lobbying the government to try and help with some initiatives to to get that. But you know, hopefully that kind of come to fruition in the next couple of years. Or as quickly as possible, ideally. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that kind of leads us on nicely as well to our, our kind of final segment that we have here, which is um, where our guest from our previous episode leaves a question for yourself. And um, so last week it was Elihesa Sakiri, the uh, general manager of the Zeta in Marlebone. And uh, she asked, uh, what can hoteliers do to make the industry a better place? <laughs> well, that's... Uh... Very nicely sequenced after my last comment. Um, I, I, I think hoteliers have a duty of responsibility and care to champion this industry, to make sure that it is seen as a self, uh, sorry, as a safe, welcoming, and progressive industry for people to come into. Um, to do that, we need to continue to treat people well. And, you know, I think the industry has made massive steps forward as to, you know, uh, perhaps how people were, uh, would operate in kitchens in the 80s and 90s to the way that the kitchens now operate and how we treat people well. And I think that has done a lot to help our industry. Continuing to invest in, in the people and the staff that choose to go into this industry is really important because, you know, w- we are up against combative industries that are taking our staff and our teams away because the the things that they enable those members of staff to have access to far exceed what you can as a hospitality venue. Um, you know, we've lost people to delivery driving. We've lost people to uh, whole different walks of life because they want a different pace of life. They want to change. And as an industry, we need to treat people well. We need to ensure that they're not working ridiculous numbers of hours a week. We we need to accept that you know, hospitality people have families. They need to see them. We don't open at Christmas. We never have. We've never, never opened on Christmas Day for the single sole reason that we're a family business and I wouldn't want to be sat serving people on Christmas Day. Now, I, I turn away money as a result of that, but it's the right thing to do. And as an industry, we need to continue to champion doing the right thing for the people that work in this industry and making sure that the, you know, the industry is seen in a positive light by, uh, you know, by um, the government, by uh, the public, and that it's not somewhere that, that is just constantly struggling. Um, 
And I guess the, the last thing is that, that as hospitality, we just have to continue to focus on service. The minute you start looking at service and the minute that starts, actually what we're here to do, the basic rule of hospitality is to serve the customer. If you stop doing that, you're not an hospitality venue anymore. You're, you're, you're doing something different. So those are the things I would, I would definitely say that will make our industry a better place. Um, yeah, I think Hazel will be very encouraged by that answer. Um, and finally, um, do you have a question for our next guest? I do. Um, what one thing could the government do that would improve uh, the hospitality industry for the most people? Brilliant. Um, Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Checking In, a weekly podcast from Hotel Owner, the UK's trusted source of hotel industry news and analysis. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you listen to. To get more industry insight, head to hotelowner.co.uk and subscribe for unlimited access. If you're interested in sponsoring episodes of the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at hotelowner.co.uk.